the United States of America. A long-time presence in Southeast Asia, but the regional environment has changed. Political realities, climate change, digital issues, China's growing influence. Amid these myriad challenges, how will the U.S. fare? How will Southeast Asian governments respond? Join us for Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, a podcast series by the U.S. program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Let's begin, shall we? Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin an Associate Research Fellow with the U.S. Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. Hi, I'm Adrian Ang. I'm also in the U.S. Program at RSIS. And we will be your hosts for this episode, A New Era Under Marcos, U.S.-Philippines Ties in 2023. The past few months have seen a flurry of activity in U.S.-Philippines Ties. Under U.S. President Joe Biden and Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Washington and Manila are resuming and expanding security cooperation under the 2014 Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, or EDCA, which permits the U.S. to deploy conventional forces in the Philippines on a rotational basis. There is even speculation that Subic Bay may once again host U.S. forces in the coming months. Cooperation is also growing in areas such as energy security, with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris unveiling a host of new initiatives such as a geothermal plant and a new energy dialogue during a state visit in November 2022. President Marcos even remarked that he does not see a future for the Philippines that does not include the U.S. Still, there are limits and speed bumps to Manila's engagement with Washington. Tensions in cross-straits relations are a sensitive issue with President Marcos noting that it is hard to imagine a scenario where the Philippines would not get involved in a cross-strait conflict given their geographic location. There are also questions about how Marcos' strategy will develop or whether foreign policy will be used to further his personal interests. Joining us to discuss this important topic are two distinguished academics, Professor Meli Caballero-Anthony, Professor of International Relations at RSIS, where she holds the President's Chair for International Relations and Security Studies and is the head of the Center for Non-Traditional Security Studies, and Professor Renato De Castro, a professor in the Department of International Studies at De La Salle University, Manila, and the Dr. Aurelio Calderon Chair in Philippine-American Relations. Professor Anthony's research interests include regionalism and multilateralism in Asia-Pacific, human security and non-traditional security, nuclear security, conflict prevention, and global governance. She has published extensively on a broad range of security issues in Asia-Pacific, in peer-reviewed journals and international academic press, and has led a number of global and regional research projects on international security and global governance. Professor De Castro earned his PhD in 2001 as a Fulbright Scholar in the Government and International Studies Department of the University of South Carolina. He has a bachelor's and two master's degrees from the University of the Philippines. As a member of the Board of Trustees of the Strat-based ADR Institute of Strategic and International Studies, he writes opinion columns for the Business World and Philippine Star newspapers. His research interests include Philippine-US security relations and Philippine defense and foreign policy. Professor Anthony, Professor De Castro, thank you for joining us today. Now, I would like to pose the first question to Professor Anthony. 
One practice we're cultivating for this podcast is to give a letter grade to ties between the US and the Southeast Asian country at hand. We would first like to explore what letter grade you would assign to Washington for its bilateral ties with the Philippines over the past year or so. But for the benefit of our audience, we would also like you to give us a brief recap of the main developments over the past few months. Over to you, Professor Anthony. Thank you, Kevin. uh, And thank you, Adrian, for this uh, invitation to join this podcast. Straight to your question about what letter grade would I give the U.S.-Philippine relations in the last seven to eight months since the administration of the new president has started, I would give it perhaps a grade B and going towards B+. That's a big improvement from the previous administration where the relationship was a bit uncertain given the preference by the previous president to move closer to to China. So if you look at the developments over the last few months or even towards the end of the Duterte administration, you would see that there's been an attempt by some political elites and now by the current administration to correct that so-called imbalanced relationship with that of China and to move closer to the U.S. ambit, so to speak, given the kind of security challenges that the Philippines face. So that has been, I think, welcomed by some sectors in the Philippines, given the fact that when you look at the Philippine position vis-a-vis China, And the fact that the Chinese have been openly occupying some of the territories, the islands in the South China Sea, having the U.S. at your back actually helps the Philippines, if only psychologically, knowing that there's a power that will actually come and assist you should things go south. I see. Thank you very much. Yes, it seems that the relationship has definitely improved a lot since the last administration. There's been a lot of interest in how President Marcos will run his administration and its foreign policy stance. For example, Marcos has expressed on numerous occasions that the Philippines will be a friend to all and an enemy to none on the world stage. So some observers initially thought that President Marcos would lean closer to Beijing in his foreign policy and questioned, for example, whether he would agree to the expansion of uh, the EDCA. They were proved wrong. So what do you think about President Marcos's foreign policy, given his time in office so far, and where is it going from here? Well, a friend to all, an enemy to none is something that's not common, I think, not just in the Philippines, but to many countries, particularly small powers. So what it only means is that the Philippines will try to have a balanced, more balanced foreign policy. And then it wants to cultivate relations, particularly with its immediate neighbors. And as far as the major rivalry between the U.S. and China is concerned, it wants to be seen as not favoring one over the other. So that's what it means. But insofar as charting the path forward, as far as U.S. and Philippine relations are concerned, this obviously a push by some sectors and some, as I said, political elites for the Philippines to be more frank about its desire to move closer to the U.S. and for the U.S. to play a more active role in ensuring the security of the Philippines. I mean, maritime security is obviously top of the list, given the concerns over the Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. I mean, you've seen that just in the last week or so when Filipino fishermen were basically, quote unquote, attacked by some of the Chinese coast guards and 
to the point where their safety is actually compromised. And so this is something which some commentators in the Philippines are saying that the Philippines should in fact cultivate alliance relations in ensuring its own security as well as its, its own sovereignty. So allies in this respect is not only limited to just the U.S., but of course friendly countries like, for example, Japan, thus also has issues with China. And also when you think about historically, the U.S. and Philippine defense relations, you know, ties run even deeper even before the current and uh, the last two administration. They have this mutual defense arrangements and the other kinds of exercises that's ongoing. We have the Visiting Forces Agreement, and as you mentioned earlier on, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. So all of these arrangements are there for the Philippines to make use of in cultivating deeper relationship with the U.S. Thank you, Professor Anthony. Turning to Professor Renato now, what do you make of Philippine foreign policy under President Marcos so far, particularly concerning its ties with the U.S.? Well, for one thing, this is not entirely new. Actually, the ship away from China began during the latter part of the Duterte administration, specifically around February 2021. The point here is that eventually President Duterte realized that appeasing China simply doesn't work. China did not deliver the amount of money that they promised in 2011. And of course, you have coercive and aggressive actions conducted by China even during the first four years of the Duterte administration. So what we witnessed in the current administration, and of course that began last year, actually started even before. So remember, President Bongbong Marcos, when he was a candidate, said, I would basically follow the policy of President Duterte. I think he was referring to that period in the term of President Duterte when, of course, the former president had the realization that pivoting to China is actually a very dangerous move. So now you have to return back on the going back to what we considered as the normal as relying on alliance. And in my academic articles, I use the term limited hard balancing. You know, that you have to have always an insurance policy when you deal with China. So that's, we see a continuation. Of course, what happened in 2022 was, of course, President Marcos did not have that uh, luggage of President Duterte, who started his four-year terms marked by appeasing China. When President Marcos became president in June 30, 2022, there was no luggage whatsoever. So he really indicated, even before he became president, that one thing, he would uphold the territorial integrity of the Philippines, he had already acknowledged the arbitral ruling, and there's no trace of any anti-Americanism or a very euphoric effort to gravitate towards China. So what we're seeing actually is simply a continuation of what happened in the upper part of the Duterte administration. Some would say it's a return to normalcy, the normal trajectory of Philippine foreign policy, which is marked by, of course, close security relationships, not only with the United States, but with other allies like Japan. Australia, and of course, a very suspicious, or sometimes, of course, I would use the term balancing approach vis-a-vis -vis China. And the obvious reason, of course, is China's maritime expansion into the Philippines' maritime domain. Professor De Castro, can I jump in? Because you just mentioned 
Japan, right? And I know you've, you've written on, on the Philippine-Japan security relationship. So what do you make of President Marcus's discussion of the prospects of new defense deals with Tokyo when he visited just recently, including the visiting forces agreement style and sort of broader US-Philippine-Japan tripartite military agreement. So do you see this as a continuation of what you've written on before, the Philippines' sort of strategy of trying to navigate between the dragon and the sun? Yes. Again, this is also a continuation. Uh, President Duterte, despite the fact that, of course, he tried to distance the Philippines from the United States, maintained that security partnership with Japan. President Duterte never had any problem in terms of maintaining. In fact, during his term, he tried to leverage our security partnership with Japan with, of course, our alliance with the United States. He had no problem with it. He had a great relationship with the late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So what basically happened, of course, was during his last visit, there were talks of a possibility of a tripartite agreement, which is actually a case of formalization of what I call a security network already existing between the United States, Japan, and the Philippines. So this network is, of course, marked by you have two alliances, Philippine-US, US-Japan, linked by the Philippine-Japan Security Partnership at the base. That was a network. So there has been talk to formalize it in the form of agreement, but I don't think it would reach to that level unless, of course, you have a major exigency that will happen across the Luzon Strait, and I'm referring to Taiwan. So for the meantime, I think the three countries are comfortable with a security network, not by a security agreement, because this will entail a lot of planning, a lot of negotiations, and especially here in the case of the Philippines, and I think also in the case of Japan, you have to present it to your legislature, which would, of course, create a lot of problems. Delving a bit deeper, I'd like to ask a question about U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's visit to Manila in February 2023. Not only was the U.S. forces being granted access to four more bases to, in the Philippines on a rotational basis, but there was also talks about restarting joint patrols in the South China Sea. So Secretary Austin called the expansion of the EDCA a big deal. How significant would you say is this development in relative terms? And what does this mean for the wider bilateral relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines? Well, it's significant because actually it broke a stalemate within an internal debate that was happening. One group, of course, led by the military and the Department of Defense, wanted really an expanded EDCA. There were opposition within the cabinet coming from certain elements, initially, of course, from the National Security Council. At the time, of course, it was headed by a lady, a National Security Advisor. Eventually, a few days or even a few weeks just before the bilateral meeting, which happened a couple of weeks before Secretary Austin's visit to Manila. Because prior to Secretary Austin's visit to Manila, you have the two plus two meeting that happened in Manila. The groundwork has already been prepared, but there was a sort of a snag because of an earlier opposition coming from some members of the cabinet. The visit of Secretary Lloyd Austin, plus, of course, the replacement of that national security advisor by a former AFP uh, chief of staff, I'm referring, of course, to General Año, changed the equation upset the balance within the administration. So, in fact, I think that's the reason why Secretary Lloyd Austin came here, is to break the stalemate that was happening within the Philippines and, of course, unleash this momentum for really expanding EDCA. There were opposition. Cabinet uh, was not, of course, unanimous. 
in terms of expanding EDCA and, of course, the Joint Patrol. Despite there was already indication coming, no less, from the president that he had no problem with this. So the visit of Secretary Lloyd Austin removed that stalemate and generated this momentum. But mind you, original agreement that was agreed upon by OIC Paustino in September and Secretary Austin when they met in Hawaii was 10. So what you basically come out is, of course, nine, which is an indication that something happened along the way from September to February. So that's basically the major accomplishment made by Secretary Austin's visit. For the benefit of our listeners, some of whom might not be very familiar with U.S.-Philippines ties, I'd like to ask a rather basic question. What is the significance of Subic Bay for Washington? Well, historically, the United States Navy built Subic Bay when the Philippines became a territory of the United States. Early on, right by the 1900s, Subic Bay should be an area where the U.S. Navy could project American naval power into Asia. And that has been always the case. Of course, you have a period where there was a gap when the Philippine Senate in September 1991 did not concur to the Philippine-American Cooperation Treaty that could have, of course, provided extension for American stay at Subic Naval Base. With that agreement not being concurred to by the Philippine Senate, you have, of course, the last United States Marine leaving Subic Naval Base in November 1992. So you have this gap. Now, it's simply a case of the U.S. Navy going back to what it is perceived as its traditional base for projecting U.S. naval power at the beginning of the 20th century. So that will be very significant. And of course, take into account, it's not included in the EBCA site. It's separate from the EBCA sites. Even during the time of President Duterte, just a few weeks after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, President Duterte was already announcing the U.S. forces are welcome to use Subic and Clark separate from the five original joint location provided by the 2014 Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. So it is separate. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on the history of, of Subic Bay. And there has been speculation that it might be included in the agreement, but it's not been confirmed, I believe. Well, I think the arrangement there would be more commercial. The Philippine Navy and the United States Navy would share in the development and of course, because it's owned by a private company, an American-Australian consortium, so the arrangement there would be very commercial. Just like in Singapore, arrangement in Changi, the same. It's very commercial. EDCA would be different because they are inside a Philippine military camp. So the arrangement here would be commercial. So that's why it's not included among the EDCA sites. Hi, Melly. I was wondering if I could jump in and go back to one of the points that you raised which was the noises made by some of the political elites about possibly pressuring the Marcos administration. I was wondering if you could expand on the role of Filipino domestic politics or sort of nationalist sentiments in the role that you see the Marcos administration acting in pushing back against Chinese actions in the South China Sea. Maybe we can separate the groups, because if you say nationalist group, right, there are some nationalist sectors in the society. 
that are not necessarily comfortable uh, with the Philippines moving or edging closer to the U.S. Because, you know, for the longest time, especially since the early 1990s, as you know, the military bases, the two major military bases in the Philippines was actually closed as a result of the so-called nationalist fervor. It wants the Philippines to be to be seen as an independent state and not uh, another stooge of the U.S., so to speak. That's putting it roughly. But the Philippines and the U.S., they always have this, uh, Filipinos rather, have a love-hate relationship with the U.S. So they love Hollywood, they love all these things, but they want to be seen to be independent. They don't want to be seen as very American-centric, right? And even in the schools, for example, the use of English as the media of instruction, there was a time when there was actually a push to use the national language as the medium of instruction. Of course, all that didn't necessarily work. But more recently, if you fast forward, uh, it's it's really to do with the times. The sentiment is reflective of the current environment that the Philippines faces. And at least in the last 10 years, I think the Filipinos are made more aware of its vulnerability vis-a-vis very strong, muscular China that is not only strong economically, they're dependent for two China for investments, but at the same time, it seemed to be very weak in pushing back against Chinese military moves. And on the other hand, there's also a discomfort with some of the the so-called Chinese investments, business activities that's taking place in the Philippines, which are not necessarily uh, positive. The contribution to the Philippine economy is actually suspect. These casinos, for example, and the influx of a lot of illegal Chinese workers that are seen to be passing through without any checks. And so there's this discomfort with what's happening. And even down to Chinese having their own restaurants and excluding Filipino clientele, customers. So with that kind of sentiment, it's a wake-up factor that to what extent do you really want China to control not just your economy, but even your territory? So some elites are that say, yeah, this is what happens when you openly say you want to court China, uh, sacrifice everything just because you want the investments at the point of sacrificing your own sovereignty and your dignity, so to speak. So the elites, therefore, and especially those that have very close ties with the Americans because some of the political elites, when you talk about educational to study abroad, it's always towards the U.S. It's always been very U.S.-centric. That's explained because of its colonial experience. U.S. has always been the country to go to. So it's quite normal, therefore, that there is now even stronger push to really ensure that the U.S. is back, that you're basically getting the U.S. attention focus to the Philippines. And the timing is right, given the fact that the U.S. is once again pivoting to Southeast Asia. And therefore, the Philippine military, the Philippine elites, particularly the military, are then saying you should actually emphasize the strategic position of the Philippines vis-a-vis China. And when it comes to ensuring that there's a freedom of passage of navigation, for example, and in light of the so-called Indo-Pacific push by the U.S., that the Philippines is part of the game, that it's actually within the scope of the U.S. And when you talk about Indo-Pacific plus countries, where you talk about Vietnam, right, that the Philippines should not lose out to certain countries, given the fact that you're supposed to have this defense arrangements with the U.S. If I might follow up on that, the EDCA that was agreed to when Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was just in the Philippines sort of goes actually, I think, beyond what was originally agreed. 
in 2014. I think it, it, it almost doubles the, the number of bases that the U.S. would have access to, and some of them would be in key strategic locations close to the South China Sea and also to Taiwan. So given that, do you think that this move by the Marcos administration means that the Philippines has picked a site in the U.S.-China competition, or do you see this as a more of a rebalancing or return to hedging by the Philippines? Yeah, it's more the latter, I think, because for all intents and purpose, they are purposely keeping this EDCA arrangement quiet, right? Uh, they have not identified where the four bases are. Of course, the speculation is that it is in those locations that faces the West Philippine Sea, so to speak, right? But at the same time, if you look at the visits that the Philippine president has done, so his first visit when he took power was to China, and then he went to the U.S., and then, of course, Kamala Harris came. But then he made sure that when they had the meeting in Bali, that again, he made sure that he was seen very closely engaging with, with President Xi Jinping. The Philippines always likes to say, even the political elites and the administration would always like to say that the relationship, the Philippine foreign policy or its relationship with the U.S. is not just limited to military and the Philippines relationship with China is not just economic, that it's actually cuts across all dimensions. That is the way for the Philippines to be seen as that picking a side. So I think it is understandable that for a small power like the Philippines, who's not even sure, you know, this thing about U.S. commitment to the Philippines, it needs to be tried and tested. It's not automatic when push comes to shove and the Chinese attack the Philippines that the U.S. will actually come to the Philippine rescue. There have been pronouncements to that effect, but at the same time, this has to be qualified by approval in the U.S. Congress. The Philippines is not like the NATO members. It's a non-NATO ally, so it's quite different. And this has been the debate in the early 1990s when they decided to close the Philippine bases. The nationalists in the Philippines were saying, you'll be deluding if you think that the Americans will come to the aid of the Philippines should you actually be physically attacked. So there's always this this nagging doubt about the extent of the U.S. commitment. And because of that, the hedging strategy has to come in. This was, in fact, demonstrated very clearly by the first Marcos administration, the father of the current president. He was the first one to cultivate, among Southeast Asian countries, to actually openly cultivate relations with China when the rest of the Southeast Asian countries were wary about what was then seen as a very communist China. So it's that, and perhaps the previous administration did it in a very crude way in trying to rebalance the two. And so the Marcos administration, Marcos II administration, I would call it, is trying to refine that approach in trying to seem to carry out a more a more sophisticated foreign policy strategy rather than the either or kind of position that their administration took. Thank you. Thank you for the response. I'd like to talk about Melinda's response to the recent laser incident between the Chinese and Philippine Coast Guards and President Marcos's response to it. What does this say about his approach towards territorial issues in the South China Sea, especially in comparison to his predecessors? Well, he's taken more or less a hardline stance. The fact that he allowed the Philippine Coast Guard to send one of its biggest ships and delivering the supply, primarily because of the past harassment. The harassment did not start just February. It began in October 
and it was happening. And you even have incident where you have the Chinese Coast Guard blocking a Philippine Navy boat that was collecting debris from a Chinese satellite that splashed down in the West Philippine Sea, South China Sea. So you already have that incident. And that incident happened at the time that I think it was still in Beijing. So there was a really an eye-opener for him. It was in Beijing, and this is happening on the ground. And of course, what really I think affected the Philippines is not simply that laser incident. It's Chinese Coast Guard driving away ordinary Filipino fishing folks. He even asked President Xi Jinping, China could allow them because they're just ordinary, traditional fishing folks. And the Chinese Coast Guard would either drive them away or confiscate their best catch. So the laser incident is, again, uh, something that made him realize about the coercive, uncompromising position of the Chinese Coast Guard and, of course, the People's Liberation Army's Navy when it comes to the imposing and reinforcing the nine-dash line, and which is, of course, a dispute. So his position is, uh, say, very firm. He's lived up to his commitment that he will not give an inch of Philippine territory, which he announced even before he became president in May 22. This is simply ocean apart from the previous position of President Duterte, who even said he welcomed the Chinese Coast Guard patrolling Philippine waters as long as they don't harass the Philippine Coast Guard. Thank you. On the topic of joint patrols, actually, given the talk about plans for joint patrols between the U.S. and the Philippines in the South China Sea as well, how do you think that initiative is going to play out? Well, it will make uh, the People's Liberation Army's Navy and, of course, the Chinese Ghost Guard and the Maritime Militia and even, of course, PLA personnel manning those nine artificial and militarized islands within the Philippine Exclusive Economic Zone, something to think about. So they won't have just to deal with a puny Philippine Navy they will have to deal with the most powerful Navy in the world, the United States Navy. And chances are, I think President Marcos is open to the inclusion of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. That's why there's a talk about status of forces agreement and even mutual logistics assistance. So that's all in the pipeline, two agreements that the Philippines and Japan are planning to negotiate. SOPA, status of forces agreement, and mutual logistic reciprocal assistance. Thanks, Professor Renato. So far, we've been discussing hard security issues in the U.S.-Philippine relationship. I'd like to change tack by talking about Vice President Kamala Harris's earlier visit to the Philippines, where she had some interesting initiatives, which were economic cooperation. And I was wondering what your opinions were regarding some of those proposals, uh, their potentials, for success and which of those initiatives we should be keeping an eye on? I think the initiative to develop civilian nuclear power plant is something that's very, very important in light of the concerns against climate change. That's one. So the push for cleaner energy. And second, really, because of the kind of energy demands that the Philippines faces. You know, the Philippines holds the record as having the most expensive uh, electricity bill across Asia. And simply because they don't have enough. And the first built nuclear power plant that unfortunately has not been used was actually a Westinghouse, an American built plant. 
So whether they want to push ahead with reviving that old power plant, which I think all indications point to it's more expensive to rehabilitate it rather than to go for what they call small modular nuclear power plants. And in this case, the U.S. is actually one of one of the leaders in that technology. There's Russia and there's, of course, China. So if something like this could actually be advanced further, be developed further, then that will go a long way in actually meeting, in addressing the energy concerns of the Philippines and ensuring that they have a stronger energy base, if you like. And I recall also, it was not just the civilian nuclear power plant, but even the geothermal plants, which in the case of the Philippines, being an archipelago, actually has a lot of potential, but many of its geothermal power plants are also quite old and really needs a lot of capital. So that holds a lot of promise. The second is U.S. assistance in improving, for example, the capacity of the public health sector in the Philippines, particularly in light of the concerns about probability of a new virus. So the Philippine U.S. cooperation in public health is extremely important. For climate change, technology towards achieving a more green economy is also something that holds a lot of promise. And in fact, if you look at it from the perspective of Quad, the, the kind of areas that Quad has actually identified, climate change and public health are actually two areas which I believe one could argue that the Philippines should actually capitalize on if that is what's happening. And the, some of the strength that the Quad has, which brings together not just just the United States, but also Japan. So the Philippines should actually actually push for that, if only to meet not just its military and defense requirements, but also in its economy and its public health. Talking about the economy, if I may add, that is something that both countries should actually work on, because despite the so-called close relationship with, with Philippines and the U.S., in terms of foreign investment, the United States is actually only number four, number five. The top foreign investor in the Philippines is actually Singapore, followed by, I believe, the Netherlands, other countries. So there's much that can be done to actually improve trade relations between the Philippines and the United States. The United States is the biggest export market that the Philippines has. But in terms of trading, the Philippines is a poor 30 compared to the kind of relations the U.S. has with other countries. So there's a lot of potential there. And I think that is something, if you were to advise the current administration, but something that should also come, you know, part and parcel of this enhanced bilateral relations. I think the proposal for renewable energy. This is, of course, a pet project of the current president, the uh, windmills, use of wind, solar power, and more importantly, nuclear power. Because we still have that nuclear power plant that has not become operational because of the change of government in 1986. So I think the president is very much interested in modernizing that nuclear power plant because it was built with the technology of the 1970s. So he will need a lot of assistance from the United States to jumpstart the operation of that nuclear power plant, plus, of course, investment in terms of wind and solar power. Those are you know, some of the topics that were discussed by Kamala Harris when she was here, and of course, by President Bongbong Marcos, late November and early December. Yes, I agree. It can't just focus on defense and security ties. It also must delve into things such as, like you said, trade and climate change, especially since U.S. strategy documents at the end of last year noted that climate change is a global problem that all of humanity faces. 
On that note, however, I'm wondering, everything looks good for the relationship going into the year ahead, but what would you say if any are the challenges that the US and the Philippines face in their relationship over the year? And are there any signs that Washington is taking steps to address these weaknesses? What are the weaknesses? I mentioned trade, but these pressures could perhaps not be internal, but could be external. You're talking about what could happen, for example, if the Taiwan problem escalates, uh, being one of the nearest countries to Taiwan and its own already frayed relationship with China because of the territorial disputes, then the Philippines does not want to be seen as being caught right in the middle of the so-called U.S. and China uh, fight over Taiwan. And because of the mutual defense treaty that the Philippines has with the United States, you don't want the U.S. to then call on the Philippines to say, we have to provide the mat, so to speak, should the crisis escalate. And that is something that the Philippines would want really to avoid. There are, of course, also the concerns about what you call the gray zone areas that could also involve China. And this is something I think that would determine perhaps or define further the extent to which this uh, closeness between the U.S. and Philippine ties, because you would want to know what kind of commitment the U.S. actually has in helping the Philippines address many of these gray zone problems. Well, number one, I think the initial pressure point would be the locations, especially uh, opposition from local government officials who probably had Chinese investments in their locality or probably received some funding, support from the Chinese government in terms of infrastructure development. We don't know. So this already became apparent last year when you have a governor, I think of Cagayan province, somewhere in northern Luzon, voices opposition for light fire exercises in his province. And again, he repeated that he does not want American bases in his province. So this is one of the pressure points how the national government can convince the local government who for one reason or the other have developed economic links, commercial economic links with China. So uh, the Americans would have to offer something better in terms of, you know, EDCA, the development of EDCA sites would entail huge infrastructure developments and probably also U.S. investment. So the game would have to be played at the local level. Plus, of course, you will have to take into account associated issues once you have boots on the ground on how some interest group, the nationalist groups, communist influence front organizations would use issues associated with actual American presence uh, in those EDCA sites. And of course, you'll have issue again of challenging Philippine sovereignty, nationalism, so forth and so on. So those are the issues I think would both the Philippines and the United States would have to deal with. Actual implementation of EDCA, once you have American forces starting to come here and, of course, utilize those joint locations, might even have issues regarding access. Some sites might be off-limits from Filipino forces or base commander. This will create a lot of problems or issues again. So those are things that are expected once you have the implementation of EDCA. Plus, of course, the real tests of this Expanded security relationship is just in case you have a, what I call a situation of push comes to shove. When you have the actual strategic or armed contingency happening either in the South China Sea and in Taiwan, how the two allies would have to react. So those are things that will be happening sooner than later once you have actual implementation of the enhanced defense cooperation. Plus, of course, 
given the fact that EDCA would actually expire by April uh, next year. So let's see what will happen once you have this uh, renegotiation of the Advanced Defense Cooperation Agreement in April 2024. Thank you. I'd like to follow up a little bit on potential pressure points. Some observers have noted that domestic security concerns in the Philippines may present a little bit of a stumbling block for relations with external powers, especially if it occupies the government in Manila's attention, particularly concerning the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. What is your opinion about how these kind of domestic security concerns might affect relations with Washington? For one thing, of course, Washington could also assist in terms of military assistance, just in case you have a problem, you have an issue. But at the same time, looking at the state right now of the uh, domestic insurgency, the communist movement has dramatically declined. There are probably about 3,000 armed communist fighters there. MILF has been practically been part of the government because of the peace deal. The only problems are, of course, some areas in Mindanao that still could not be controlled by the Philippine government. But this is something chronic. EDCA sites, I think, will be located more in northern Luzon. The main concern might be the communist insurgents there. Plus, of course, you have the communist front organizations who will always raise the issue of infringement of Philippine sovereignty. They're not even American bases. But the narrative is they're American bases. Going back, of course, what was there before 1992, when you actually have American bases. I've been interviewed by a lot of people, and they say referred to those EDCA sites as American bases. They're not American bases. They are Philippine bases where you have joint locations that are for use by both Filipinos and Americans. So that's one of the pressure points. Again, the never-ending discourse that this presence of American forces in the Philippines is, of course, an infringement of Philippine sovereignty. So immediately after it was announced, the Philippine government was immediately put in a defensive position by these groups. We expect more of this, as of course you have the implementation of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. All right, thank you very much. With all these issues that we discussed in mind then, what letter grade would you assign to the prospects for U.S.-Philippines ties in 2023? And how will the relationship fare in comparison to past years? Well, if many of these pronouncements by the U.S. in not only coming to the aid of the Philippines in ensuring its security and in ensuring that it actually helps in the development of the economy, if this is translated into real programs and particularly in dollars and cents, then my grade of B would perhaps go to B+. And maybe A, but I think that's a bit uh, too idealistic and a bit not too realistic, you know, because anything can happen, right? The U.S. could be distracted by what's happening elsewhere. And this renewed pivot could again be scuttled because of what's happening in Ukraine and others. And you really want to test the extent to which the U.S. will continue to stay focused or will not take its attention from China while it tries to manage or continue to be a policeman for the rest of the world. So that is really something that remains to be seen. Any closing words, Professor Renato, that you'd like to leave us with? We will have a big joint Balikatan exercise that will be happening by April. It's big. It's about 17,000. Last year's Balikatan was only about eight to 6,000. Of course, another measurement of how big this Balikatan exercise is was, of course, in 2016, during the administration of the late President Benigno Aquino, that's only about 16,000. So there's already indication that the alliance would be given more importance by both sides. And of course, you alliances 
are usually vibrant dynamics, primarily because you have a clear and present danger. Countries will not go into alliance as everything is fine and peaceful. So what's happening in the Philippine-U.S. alliance, in a way, is a reflection of what's happening around the Philippines within the Indo-Pacific region. China's emergence, China's aggressive and coercive action in the South China Sea. And of course, something that I think all countries in the region is watching, the state of China-Taiwan relations, which has, of course, become extremely tense uh, since 2016. Just watch and see what will happen, how it will evolve. Things to watch out, the Balikatan exercise, then President Marcos' state visit in June 2023. It's not an official visit, it's a state visit. And of course, you'll have President Joe Biden as his host. So let's see. For the Marcoses, it's a triumphant return after being exiled in 1986. Now they're being welcomed in the United States as a head of state, contrast to what happened in 1986 when they went to the United States as exiled provided safe haven by the Reagan administration. Now they're coming back to Washington, D.C., to the United States, triumphant. Indeed, it will be quite the homecoming for President Marcos in Washington. To sum up our discussion over this episode, there is a great deal of momentum in U.S.-Philippines ties. The defense side of the relationship is hitting its stride amid concerns over Chinese aggression in the South China Sea and over Taiwan, and there are opportunities for Washington to help Manila meet its energy needs and increase trade activity. On the other hand, it remains to be seen whether Washington will be able to follow through with its promises for economic cooperation, especially since external events may stymie the progress of the relationship by demanding Washington's attention. Sovereignty concerns over the EDCA will also need to be addressed and clarified. All in all, Washington has its work cut out for it. But as has been discussed, President Marcos appears to be far more accepting of US engagement than his predecessor. And with that, I would like to thank our distinguished guests for sharing their insights with us today. Professor Anthony, Professor Renato, thank you for speaking with us. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye.